You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It's May 26, 2022 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Um, and uh, we started talking about peace. And uh, one of the things that occurred to me about this topic is a sense of peace within yourself, about yourself. Um, which uh, reflects a fairly uh, deep understanding of the nature of self. Otherwise, you get caught up in the idea that your self-experience is actually who you are and that the experience that you're having in the moment of the self is a, is a reflection of who you are. Um, we know uh, from uh, this uh, basic inquiry and actually, it's a fairly early inquiry along the path. Um, the nature of the three characteristics, uh, anatta, nicca, and dukkha, anatta being not self, um, which doesn't mean, of course, that there is no self-experience, just that the self-experience that you have is dependent on conditions like everything else and is subject to the experience of conditioning. Um, and that it arises in the moment based on conditions and it's impermanent and it falls away as the conditions change in the next moment or it morphs or changes. So there is no ongoing, permanent, unchanging, locatable <coughs> excuse me, experience of self. There is the uh, conditioned response that forms the perception of self. Um, we sometimes describe it as a, a duality. The perception of self arises and you experience the uh, outside world and the things that you're sensing as separate from that experience, even though both the self experience and what you're experiencing are made of the same uh, sensing experiences and are subject to the same uh, impermanence. <clears throat> um, in uh, attachment uh, language, really what we're talking about is a working model of self that arises and activates a pattern of sensing and uh, we recognize and identify with that pattern of sensing experience uh, as uh, this is me, this is my uh, sense of self, this is who I am. And uh, we develop that early uh, structure of that in the way that uh, our presentation, our beingness is reflected in the eyes of other people back to us. Um, So imagine you're born, you're a, a human baby so that you're entirely dependent on the care that you get. 
you present yourself in this authentic expression to the world, uh, not really knowing even what uh, what it is that you're expressing, but that you need care, that you need to be uh, nurtured, you need to be fed and swaddled and changed and all of the other things that come with the 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 uh, necessities of life developing and how that presentation is experienced by the people that take care of you is then reflected back to you in an environment where that uh, uh, is reflected back to you in a positive way we tend to begin to create this construction of self that's based on these positive experiences these positive reflections and if the uh, experience of the caregiver is different than that maybe they're irritated or agitated or uh, they find uh, you demanding it doesn't mean that your infant demands are uh, outrageous but that it is possible that they could overwhelm a caregiver who wasn't prepared for that and in reflecting back that experience you'd begin to develop a working model of being too much or being demanding or unwanted <clears throat> and as we construct through these reflections the experience of self that we have we begin to carry that forward this identification and and uh these working models of, of self develop over time and can become quite complex um, mainly our, our our experience of self is in auditory thinking uh, visual thinking and the emotional quality of the body and they come together and make these very tangible and believable experiences and then the external world or other people are really experienced externally external sight external sound um, maybe a tactile sense of them but also the empathetic experience of them the emotional experience and we begin to build working models of uh, other people um, you know, children, of course, don't have the cognitive ability to really uh, understand uh, the uh, complexities of these things or to uh, um, understand whether or not the reflections that are coming back to them are an accurate uh, portrait or not. But we do tend to take them in deeply. We do tend to identify with them. And then as we hit puberty and the cognitive mind kicks in, and we do begin to have the capacity to mentalize these things, or if we don't have the capacity from the childhood experiences, we have the possibility of developing that. Um, uh, and that we can begin to examine uh, that uh, experiences or the, that working model that creates the experience of self as it arises moment by moment and also to begin to examine in the, the way that we have constructed the working models of our caregivers and our family members. And then uh, as we venture out from the family unit itself into the, the friend groups that we have. Um, So one of the skill sets of secure uh, functioning is this ease of the experience of self so that you don't restrict the activity of self 
from conscious awareness. Uh, and you'll notice in um, that in the secure set that 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 is uh, present and uh, the experience of self as it arises um, is available uh, to experience uh, consciously and uh, and then to uh, moderate that or affect that is also available. So we would call that the freedom of expression of the internal experience of self. So you're fully open to the experience of self, and then you're free to express it in, or not express it as you wish, uh, without becoming reactive. Uh, when you don't have that freedom of expression, and the experience uh, is overwhelming internally, you tend to become reactive, and then you are uh, um, engaging in conduct, in intention and action in the world that may be unskillful. But then we look at, say, for instance, a dismissing adult, they have a tendency to block uh, uh, information about the self-experience from coming into consciousness, which doesn't mean it doesn't operate. Uh, it just doesn't operate on a conscious level. So there's these unconscious motivators that inform the intentions and actions that uh, someone takes, but they don't have the freedom of it, the experience of that internally. In, uh, so what you might say uh, uh, in terms of uh, mentalizing that is that the dismissing people are over-monitoring so that they don't allow the spontaneous expressions of, of themselves to arise in consciousness. Uh, they tend to filter it so that what they experience about uh, themselves and about the world matches this rigid map of what they think should be. Uh, how they think they should be, how they think the world should respond to them. In a preoccupied mind, it tends to be the opposite of that, very spontaneous, but very little monitoring, so that there's, an, there's just a flow of uh, intention and action that's unfiltered. So there's no freedom there either. It's a kind of uh, uh, endless uh, uh, reactivity to the experience uh, that arises. What we want to get to is a place where the experiences that we have uh, come into consciousness and that we don't pre-filter them in a way that uh, precludes us knowing things about our own reactions and about uh, our experience of the world that would be important in terms of developing uh, a skillful intention and taking a skillful action. But we also know that consciousness or the conscious experience of what happens to us is very limited compared to what comes in. <coughs> so 11 million bits per second of data comes in and yet conscious the conscious mind has a, a, a bit rate of only 16, one, six. So there's a massive exclusion of material uh, coming, coming in. So <clears throat> being mindful, of course, and engaged in the experience of the present moment 
and watching that all unfold, can we monitor those 16 bits, which would be our capacity to know what's happening? Um, and this is really where the sense of, of peacefulness and sense of ease with uh, the self-experience is important. Uh, the body-mind is, of course, uh, filtering things. Uh, the, the Buddhist word for that is Vedna. Um, <coughs> unpleasant experience, uh, pleasant, uh, neutral experience and pleasant experience is often how uh, it's talked about. But I like to say urgent. Is it urgently important that it, that it reach consciousness? Um, the vast major, majority of, of data that comes in is in the neutral category. It doesn't matter whether we, we track it or not. It's not going to have that big of an effect. And then pleasant experiences, if there's uh, time. Um, We, we have good uh, science on the, 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 the time frame of that. An urgent experience takes three-eighths of a second to process. It always jumps to the head of the queue. So that's how urgent material is reflected as a bias. We have a bias for things that we think are uh, dangerous. And you can get into a jag where only things that we are perceiving as dangerous enter the queue and have time to get into consciousness. But consciousness itself is delayed by half, half a second. That's how much time it takes to process that and come into our conscious awareness of it. So it's behind. <clears throat> uh, urgent material requires half the intensity and half the duration in order for it to get into the queue. Neutral stuff really never does. And uh, pleasant stuff takes twice the uh, uh, intensity of sensation, twice the duration, and about a half a second to, to process. So in some sense, that conscious experience that we often uh, feel is anchored in, in the present moment as it is unfolding is actually uh, delayed and is also a representation of uh, conceptual reality, which is uh, created uh, in the mind and enters consciousness as this uh, uh, meaning, meaningfulness as we, we, um, we create conceptual reality uh, in a way that uh, is relevant to us and is in our terms, uh, usually from our experiences. So we're going all the way back to that early working model as it begins to develop. And then over the course of our lifetime, as we keep reinforcing those models, uh, the habit energy creates over and over again the same kind of reality, even though uh, if we were able to see <coughs> all of the possibilities that are available to us at any moment, we would have uh, a lot of different choices we do tend to pick over and over again things that have meaning to us out of what's available. That could be a positive meaning or, or, or a negative meaning. Um, <clears throat> so we take in the sensing data in the, in, a, in the way that we can take it in. Uh, it's, it's evaluated for the urgency that it needs to be processed, 
and then that raw sensing data is compared to the perceptual database uh, and then the meanings in the database are associated with that sensing material that becomes conceptual reality which is then the thing that we know consciously When the sense of self arises, can you uh, make sense of your reaction to it? Is it neutral? Is there a sense of curiosity about why I might be reacting in this way to, the, to these conditions? Or is there such an immediate identification uh, that uh, we take on uh, that belief that this is who I am and this is what's happening to me? Jake? So what you're saying is there's kind of two levels that we're trying to develop a capacity to monitor or understand. One is the sense of self and one is the reaction to it. And within the subject of the sense of self, are you saying that basically fundamentally the attachment patterns dictate uh, the sense of self in these three, <coughs> in these three kind of uh, stable, predictable ways. Is right. that am I hearing that right? So, if that's the case, can you can you give us a little bit more uh, um, information about these three senses of self? The the uh, the dismissing, the preoccupied and the secure, can you give us more kind of concrete examples about these three senses of self and then the reactions to them? Um, <clears throat> secure people tend to have a, a, a positive view of the sense of self and they tend to have a positive view of other people. And so when they can, when in each moment, when they construct the sense of self and they construct the, the, the sense of other people, there's a bias toward a positive uh, um, representation of that. Dismissing people defend themselves against the, the deep feeling of inadequacy that comes from the experience of their childhood, uh, their childhood's attachment needs being consistently rejected by the caregiver. So they deny the reality of the rejection of the caregiver uh, and, in, and create a, an inflated sense of uh, self or a, uh, um, an idealized version of the sense of self, which they use as a, as a protector against the, the terrible uh, sadness that comes from the, their inability to get their attachment needs met by their caregivers. And might, so, might, hmm? might they also uh, create the opposite of that? Like, a, may they create a sense of self that they reject, or is that the reaction to the sense of self? Well, the the conscious experience uh, typically of a uh, dismissing person is in an idealized sense of self. An, an overvaluation of their capacities or capabilities. That's a defense against the, the reverse of that, which is this terrible sense of inadequacy and uh, sadness that they tend to have. 
but in order to keep that sense of um, themselves uh, inflated, they need to then devalue other people uh, in relationship to that sense of self so that they can keep themselves at the above. <clears throat> so it, their view of themselves is a grandiose sense of self and then a devaluing uh, sense of other people. That's how they create the models. And those tend to be the filters so that when um, they form conceptual reality based on that conditioning, they create the experience of that. One could really see like if a, if a dismissive person becomes a meditator, and then they become aware that that's how they're constructing the sense of self, in a way it kind of makes sense that then they would just want to totally uh, deny the, the sense of self because they see how problematic it is that what they're doing and then it would make sense that they would want to say you know ego and sense of self is this huge problem right. rather than seeing it as a possibility to that you could have actually a, a helpful positive ego right if you okay. look at a preoccupied person they tend to view themselves as uh, inadequate and helpless um, and that's because in their childhood experiences, the, um, the experience of trying to consistently get care from their caregiver wasn't possible because the caregivers were too unpredictable. One of the things that creates a sense of security is that you're able to figure out how to communicate your needs to your caregiver and then for the caregiver to uh, consistently respond to those needs in a way that's useful to you. And uh, in a preoccupied experience, uh, that's not possible because the caregivers are not reliable in that way, not predictable in that way. So they have a sense of themselves as inadequate, but they do tend to think of other people as capable. And the reason that they think of that is because um, the, sometimes the caregiver does provide for them. And so they think that if they just ask in the right way or present themselves in the right way, that the caregiver could at any time provide their needs, and they tend to generalize that to everybody. So they think of themselves as incapable, but they think of everybody else as capable, and that if they can just get the other people to help them, then they can be taken care of. And so they tend to have a bias in the way that they allow information into consciousness that uh, reinforces that view. Is that making sense? So again, sort of the same thing for the preoccupied people. If they start to meditate and they realize how problematic their sense of self is, they might also just think this sense of self is a huge problem. Like that sense of self is the problem rather right. than that, that would be the reaction against it. I see. Right. So then what we, we know, and when we look into the Buddhist concept of not self, is to open up to the sensing experience of self with a, a, a equanimous view, so that we just see the activity of self as it arises without identifying with it, uh, and without it informing our intention and actions, so that we can actually mentalize that the experience in the present moment has caused the activation of a selfing experience, which we've identified 
based on our conditioning and created a meaning that was uh, rooted in that historical working model of self that we've developed over the course of our lifetime. And in that moment of seeing it with this uh, openness and uh, neutrality, create the possibility of responding in a way that's not uh, conditioned uh, on that database, but is free to be uh, um, uh, based on actually the conditions of the present moment and not lost to the, the, the conditioning of, uh, of that displaces our awareness of the present moment and um, conforms it to the past conditioning. Jake? So I'm just curious, I keep bringing it back to the same point. For you, when you're doing the IPF or the kind of therapeutic work with people, do you often see that that's a problem for people that, for instance, they feel judgmental against their sense of self, they feel their sense of self is bad or wrong, so then they feel like they want to do the uh, IPF work to make it better, for instance. Right. But there, there's not that sense of understanding and equanimity there. And so, I mean, that's such a must be such a common problem. How do you? How much do you? You know, how much? How important is it in in the therapeutic work of of uh, reframing or developing the sense of self? Well. In the ideal parent figure work, which is part of the attachment repair work that we do, we have the ideal parent figures reflect back to uh, the child state uh, that the person comes into a uh, ideal uh, positive uh, experience of the child. So here what we're doing is cultivating an intentional positive representation of the uh, self-experience. So we recall uh, the self-experience through memory and so that uh, ideally what you're doing is working with these various child states that are based on the uh, er early uh, versions of the working model of self that are uh, based in memory and then layering in these uh, different reflections so that when the body mind goes into the database, uh, the perceptual database, looking for the meaning of the uh, undifferentiated ultimate reality, that pure sensing data that's coming in in the present moment, it can assign different meanings to them based on the process of the database um, creating meaning. <clears throat> The reason that this is an, an important and necessary thing to do is because of that half second delay, the process of forming uh, conceptual reality out of ultimate reality is usually completed by the time it enters into uh, conscious awareness. So it's already formed. And if you didn't have insights into the nature of that process and you, you would just have to catch it after it formed. So then you would be uh, playing catch up rather than um, uh, <coughs> just automatically inhabiting a different version. Um, <coughs> one of the things that happens, of course, before you have these insights is that you think that the version of, 
of uh, conceptual reality that you're experiencing is accurate and that it uh, that it uh, uh, you know many people have a sort of a psychic equivalence uh, experience this is what i'm experiencing it's an accurate representation of what's going on which means everybody's having the same experience that i i'm having and um <clears throat> When you really uh, begin to see into this, what you discover is that you're making up your version of reality based on your conditioning. And because your conditioning is different from everybody else's, you understand that everybody else is making up their version of what's happening based on their conditioning. So everybody's operating with these different uh, um, uh, experiences and one of the things that's so interesting about intimacy between people is that if you feel safe enough uh, uh, that you're you allow yourself to be vulnerable to express what your actual experience is of the present moment and uh, somebody that you're with uh, feels safe enough to be vulnerable to actually express their experience of what's going on you really get to see and know somebody intimately based on how they make the world differently than you make the world. Uh, you can open up and uh, see and begin to understand uh, the reflections that uh, come back at you uh, from them, which is one of the, really the way that we know uh, ourselves. And then you can then authentically reflect back to them your experience of them so that they also have that uh, sense of themselves uh, that that's so valuable. If you have um, <clears throat> intimate friendships that are uh, safe, uh, then uh, you can begin to rely on the reflection that other people are, express to have a gauge of how you're actually doing in a way that you would not be able to know simply from uh, touching into your own internal experience is that making sense so the idea here is to come into this place of equanimity and simply allow all of these experiences of self to come into consciousness so that you can have a, a, a good data set to understand what's actually happening how you're actually it's experiencing things so that you can then uh, make your intention and form your action take the action track how uh, uh, that action what the response is to that action so that you can moderate your expression so that it is an accurate representation of what you want to uh, communicate what you want to effect And then um, I, I think of it as a, a kind of easy curiosity about the experience of yourself and an easy curiosity about your experience of uh, other people as you create them moment by moment and openness that comes from uh, a, uh, um, a lack of identification with the, the self-experience as it arises oh, I've made myself like this in this moment. It's kind of curious. Why? What were the conditions? What were the definitions that I used to create this experience of me now? 
And this is the uh, this is the you I've made uh, you into in this moment. Just kind of curious, what what did I use from my database um, um, that uh, allowed me to create this experience of you in in this moment? And then to pay attention to whether it's accurate or not. Uh, is it actually the other person, or is it the definitions that you have from from your own past that is, uh, has been the the dominant model in the moment that's created this reality? <coughs> Making sense, Jake? But. How I mean, if they're all just models of reality, how can we know which one is, uh, you know, ultimately more real than the other? Isn't it just more of a question of skillfulness? Like, which one is ultimately going to be skillful? Secure functioning is going to be skillful versus insecure functioning is going to be unskillful. But ultimately, they're both just models, aren't they? Right. Well. I think of it as a constant movement of this is what I've made, this is what I'm sensing, this is what I've made, this is what I'm sensing. And in an equanimous mind, we tend to make uh, the conceptual reality that actually matches pretty well to the data coming in. And so in that constant comparing, of this is the sensing experience, this is conceptual reality, it illuminates a filter um, that uh, is or is not there. In the equanimous mind, of course, there's no filter. And then with different uh, uh, views or mind states, there's a different quality of filtering that happens. Uh, I think that the, that, uh, monitoring views or monitoring mind states is something that we also develop in the dyadic relationship early with our caregivers if we have sensitive enough caregivers who are interested in this process for us so one of the other advantages that secure people have is that they have caregivers who are interested in what the internal state of the child is and they inquire about the internal state of the child and they teach the child how to evaluate that and also how to communicate it in language so that that child can represent their internal state to their caregiver so that the caregiver can be uh, useful to the child in terms of teaching emotional regulation and, and teaching whether or not the perception of the child is uh, uh, accurate or distorted. And then as you move into adolescence, uh, if the epistemic trust that uh, is intact, uh, they, they can be very uh, helpful in, in guiding you to learn the higher cognitive capacities that come at that time. Christian? We're just mentioning the equanimous mind. Uh, what is the, what's the relationship between that and like attachment security. 
Um, well, an equanimous mind would mean that there's no filter and that it's in balance and that uh, everything that comes in uh, is ordered and you have the, the full bandwidth, I guess, of 16 bits. Uh, security is this the view that um, that uh, uh, you're capable of getting your needs met and also that the world will be responsive to meeting your needs. I mean, it, it would they would seem to be related or or my hunch would be that secure people would tend towards more equanimity than than other the other attachments. But um, I don't know the answer to that, really. Um, would be nice. <laughs> um, so I thought we would do some meditation. Um, mainly uh, using the see here field technique and doing a restricted meditation around focus in and focus out. Um, uh, I can give in some instructions as we go along. But go ahead and take your meditation posture. So any comments or questions about uh, what we just did? All right. So thanks everybody. Uh, um, we have some level ones coming up if you're interested in the attachment stuff uh, at the end of June and into July. Um, we have a level two coming up at the end of the summer, I think. We have an uh, in-person retreat, uh, which is October 1st to October 8th. Um, take a look at that. It's a, all of that is on the website. Um, I'm going to be traveling for the last three weeks of uh, June. So I think next week is the, the, um, is, uh, the last um, uh, of these until July. Uh, so stop in uh, next time. <laughs> we'll continue this and then there'll be a break. Um, what else can I tell you? Hey, George, can yeah. I talk scheduling with you when you finish? Okay. Thank you. Um, so I offer the class uh, freely, uh, but I do hope you'll make a donation, help support me on the work that Metagroup is doing. Uh, you can find a link to make a donation on the website. Thank you for coming and we'll see you soon. Bye.